Welcome to Lawyerly, the podcast for lawyers and those who love them. I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy. Today's episode of Lawyerly is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Array. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. Learn more at trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. Today, we're continuing our series called How Are You Doing Now? where we talk with lawyers who used to work for a big law firm called Howry, that is before the firm imploded and went bankrupt in 2011. In this episode, we're talking with a true Howry legend, Dale Gialli, who's gone on to an illustrious career as a partner in another big firm. Hope you enjoy hearing from Dale and get a taste of why he's one of my very favorite former Howry people. Welcome to Lawyerly. My guest today is Dale Gialli, who is a partner with Mayor Brown in Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Dale. Thanks, Sean. Now, I want to do something a little different today and introduce Dale by what others have said about him. Ready for that, Dale? <laughs> I guess. All right. According to Chambers USA, Dale has, quote, an encyclopedic knowledge of food and beverage false advertising litigation and a keen understanding of how to navigate a case, end quote. That's high praise, but we're not done. Some of his other accolades, Benchmark Litigation 2020 recognized him as a local litigation star for class actions. The National Law Journal recognized him as a litigation trailblazer. Law 360 identified Dale as one of four MVPs in the United States in the field of class action litigation. Legal 500 listed him as a leading individual and has named him to its Hall of Fame, not once, but twice. So how did you get to be so impressive? (laughs) I would say being at the right place at the right time, Sean. And as you'll recall, you were with me when it happened in about 2008, 2009, uh, what we called the food false advertising tidal wave hit. And... um, I was very fortunate to get a call uh, from one of the firm's largest clients at the time, and they were a target and started from there. Now, you've obviously developed reputation in a specific practice area. Tell us about that. Yeah, it is interesting. When I was a junior associate, I had a career counselor at our former firm, Howry, and she had indicated that I needed to specialize. And when you're a junior associate, Um, you know, you're drinking from a fire hose and you're trying to learn everything. And I'm thinking the last thing I need to do is specialize. I need to be a generalist. And if and when an opportunity comes my way, I then need to show that potential client that I have that expertise. So you, you specialize when needed. And the idea of specializing in advance to me made no sense because what's the chance you're going to be able to fill your time with enough of those cases that you can be a practicing full-time successful lawyer? That all really changed for me when the food and beverage tidal wave of consumer class action litigation happened. Let me explain a little bit about, so in the 2008, 2009, for the first time, food companies, one of you know, the largest industry in our country, with household names and household brands selling billions of dollars a year, 
for the first time, they became the target of consumer class action lawyers. And it was really a confluence of factors. Class action lawyers were looking for a new target. Um, and the food companies were being relatively aggressive with their on-package labeling. So what used to be mm -mm good, which we can remember when we were kids, now becomes consume my product for brain development, for healthy heart, and for low sugar. So a lot more objective style statements. And then we also mark this tidal wave of food false advertising litigation to a woman named Jamie Lee Curtis. So Jamie Lee Curtis, the actress, she begins advertising for a yogurt product that allegedly will make you regular. And Sean, it turns out that a lot of people in this country want to be regular because that product flew off the shelf and they got sued because the claims and the attributes they were touting about how that product would make you regular, they claimed were false. That case settled, and you'll recall this, it settled for a whopping $30 million with an additional 40 or 50 million to various governments. And the plaintiff's consumer class action lawyers took notice. And from that time in the 2008-2009 timeframe to now, there's been thousands of lawsuits filed against food companies for all kinds of claims they make on their product, whether it's natural, non-GMO, healthy, flavor labeling claims, you name it. And we were fortunate enough to work for the largest food and beverage company in the world. They had a portfolio of these types of cases filed against them, and we had the opportunity to work on those. From that point forward, things took care of itself. And other clients literally reached out to us. Would we take on their case? Um, which, you know, for a lawyer is a pretty interesting uh, and I guess radical thing that clients are calling you. And once you get that critical mass of expertise in these types of cases and get the reputation, and it is a, this, this sliver of an expertise, it really can benefit you to get a lot more clients. So you described it as a tidal wave started in 2008, 2009. How has that changed in the intervening 11, 12 years? Yeah. So from about 2008 to I'd say maybe 2015, 2016, there was exponential increases in cases filed year after year. And these cases are all filed as consumer class actions. Most of them are in federal court under the Class Action Fairness Act. But all of them are suing under state consumer protection laws, so consumer deception laws. Um, and we saw them growing exponentially till about 2016 or so, and then they leveled off, but they leveled off at that high plateau. From then till now, we're seeing that same level filed each and every year. And it's almost hard to keep up with the amount of decision or amount of new cases coming out. And also, course, we live in the great state of California, which I believe our greatest export now is consumer class action litigation. And the Ninth Circuit and the California Supreme Court, from my perspective, seem to bend over backwards to provide consumer class action lawyers, plaintiffs lawyers with more tools, not less, but more tools to uh, sue 
companies for consumer deception uh, and false advertising. I recall in the early days, uh, it seemed like there were a lot of cases being filed and pretty much every case was important in terms of precedent that it was setting and you know for all kinds of reasons. Have you seen the case law sort of shake out in the 10 years since? It's a, it's a great question, and the answer is no. There is still uh, – this area of law is still defined as uncertainty, not certainty, and that's one of the reasons why it's still a fertile area for consumer class action lawyers and why there's still so many cases because there, there has not been – enough rulings uh, to really set the boundaries and guidelines. One important factor in all of this is that food is one of the most pervasively regulated products in our country. So we have federal laws. We've got the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. We have the Poultry Product Inspection Act. We got the Federal Meat Inspection Act. All of these federal laws, which govern the entire country, set out specific and significant regulations, not only about the food and food safety and processing, but also about labeling and how a label should set out appropriate information and not be false or misleading. So each of these federal statutes not only set out labeling law, but they have two very important factors to them. One, there is no private right of action under any of these federal statutes. So you and I could not cite these statutes and sue on our own behalf. These, these laws are enforced by the government agencies responsible for food. So in the federal government, that would be the FDA and the USDA. The Federal Trade Commission might get in every now and then. And each state usually has its own counterparts to those agencies. So it's these governmental agencies that can enforce these food laws. There's no prior right of action. Second, states cannot impose requirements that are not identical to the federal laws. So this is a classic preemption situation. We want a national set of rules that food companies can understand and apply, and they don't have to look at 50 different states' laws. Makes complete sense. So, but remember what I said earlier, all of these consumer class actions are filed under state consumer protection law. So you've got these state consumer protection law umbrellas trying to capture these concepts uh, that are regulated under federal law. Um, so in a, lot of, in a lot of ways, these lawsuits have a ton of tension uh, with respect to that balance between federal and state law, sometimes there's preemption issues um, and that type of thing. Another important factor as to why there's so little certainty involved is the concept of the reasonable consumer. So almost all consumer deception cases get down to a question of would a reasonable consumer be deceived or could a reasonable consumer be deceived by this label? And the reasonable consumer is this objective standard out there that, you know, would a substantial portion of the population be deceived? Let me give you an example. A recent case we've worked on is a confectionery company 
sells a product called white chips. They look just like your normal chocolate chips, only they're white, and you can use them in any type of bakery products you want, primarily cookies. But they're called white chips on the front. The word chocolate appears nowhere on the package. The theory of liability is those are being sold as white chocolate chips. And we go to federal court on these cases, Sean, whether white chips are deceptively advertised and labeled as white chocolate chips. And that's exactly what the judge had to figure out. Can a reasonable consumer look at a package that looks like baking chips? It's on the baking chips aisle. It might be right next to baking chips that are chocolate, but it itself only calls itself white chips. Can a reasonable consumer be deceived into thinking that that is a white chocolate chip? Now, the plaintiff, of course, alleges they were deceived, but that's not really the issue. The issue is, can the objective reasonable consumer be deceived? And so far, I'm happy to say these white chips cases have gone down in flames. Uh, at least three to four judges who have looked at this type of case, and there's several of these out there. Remember, it's a flood. It's a tidal wave of false advertising cases. Uh, every judge that I am aware of that has looked at these white chips cases have said, no, that does not pass the reasonable consumer test. There was never any statement or objective advertising that talks about the qualitative attribute of chocolate. And it would be legally unreasonable for a consumer to simply assume that a product called white chips is necessarily chocolate. All of that sounds like fertile ground for lawyer arguing. <laughs> <laughs> it absolutely is. Um, a lot of arguing going on as to whether it states a claim. So we do a lot of motions to dismiss, a lot of demurrers trying to knock these cases out right from the get-go under that reasonable uh, consumer standard. Well, as you know, lawyers have different approaches to decorating their offices. Some go with the rich mahogany, fine Corinthian leather approach. For others, it's all modern and sleek. How does being a food and beverage litigator affect your office decorating preferences? Well, it is interesting. I don't think you can truly get a handle on these cases and develop the best arguments unless you have the actual product. You need the three-dimensional box, bag, or bottle and you need it in your office because you need to look at how these challenged labeling claims interplay with the rest of the bottle or the rest of the package. So on a typical day, if you walk into my office, there are food packages all over the place. And I'm constantly buying the food packages that uh, are the subject of cases I'm working on. And I got to consume them real fast. Uh, you'll, you'll be happy to know. Got a lot of ice cream clients, a lot of chocolate <laughs> clients. So. Um, there's a lot of desserts involved. There's also a lot of pet food, and the good news is we got a lot of pets here, so they'll eat <laughs> they'll eat that pet food, and I can use the package. I don't need the insides; I just need the packaging. So my office is decorated uh, in, I'd say, modern food packaging. Uh, <laughs> and for everybody's reference, um, I'm looking right behind Dale in his home office with a stack of candy boxes arranged just so. What, one interesting thing about the field, too, of food false advertising, the press loves it. 
And I think it's because they've all heard of these products that have been sued. Not a client of mine, but Coca-Cola gets sued all the time. So it, the products that get sued for food false advertising um, are all products that are household names. They're made by companies that are household names and they're easy to understand. Ben and Jerry's, for example, not a client of mine, but they were sued because that product used to be called Ben and Jerry's all natural ice cream. Everybody knows Ben and Jerry's. It's a product of Unilever, one of the world's largest uh, food companies. And um, everybody has understands, you know, the concept of it says all natural on there, but no one understands the concept of what is all natural. That lawsuit, uh, got a ton of attention and most of my lawsuits get a lot of attention law 360 is constantly covering uh the cases we work on and that's that's a lot of fun too um to see that your cases are in the press that's not a bad thing for you personally uh correct there are more than a few uh, clients who have seen articles or whatnot and said we are facing almost identical allegations let's call this person because he at least has experience so you currently work at at Mayor Brown, uh, you've worked at big law firms your whole career. Uh, what's the best and worst part about working for a big firm? Well, I have. Out of law school, I worked for Jones Day. And then I also, uh, I was only there for a few years, but then I worked for the Howery Law Firm when it opened its first office outside of Washington, D.C. And I stayed there, um, gosh, I think almost 20 years. And then... Um, I have now been at Mayor Brown since March of 2011. The neat thing about all three of the offices I've worked on, uh, worked at, is they are large firms, but they're smaller offices of large firms. And you've heard people say it, but I will absolutely attest that it's true. You get the best of all worlds. Um, you do get a small office environment and that type of collegiality where you know everybody's name, but you have the resources, the brand name, and the cases that come with a big law firm. For me, being in big law um, is just a perfect marriage. It, it fits exactly what I think about when I think about what lawyers do, and it, it, it meets my expectations, and I fit in very well in a big, a big firm environment. What's your typical day like? Well, the, without question, the typical day is you never get to your to-do list. So you have an arranged, organized list of things that you need to do. But almost before you can even look at it for the day, you have enough emails and enough phone calls. And these are requests coming at you from clients, from colleagues in your firm, from opposing counsel, and from the court. So four different sources that are pelting you as early as you can get in front of your computer. And so your day is now defined by triaging which one of those do I need to get out first. And you rearrange your to-do list and everything else that does not have to be done that day gets pushed to the next day, which means almost your entire to-do list. <laughs> um, and I would say that that is my day every single day that I work and it's been that way for about 25 years. It is the rarest of rare occasions that I actually do on a day what I set out to do that day. That's really interesting. I think many people can <laughs> resonate with <Yes>. many people. <laughs> uh, how has that changed if at all during the COVID-19 crisis working from home? Yeah. 
Well, I live in Orange County. Um, and I work in downtown LA. That's it's 37 mile one way commute. So one thing for sure, and we've been working safer at home now since mid March. So one thing I just got back uh, two to three hours of my life uh, traveling. <laughs> now I don't get uh, as much of the radio news that I listen to, <laughs> um, but that two to three hours of my life back, plus that it it can exhaust you driving. Um, so I have a wee bit more energy uh, while the while I am working um, has provided a significant amount of time. I will tell you my actual um, utilization, that's hours that are on client matters, has gone way up in 2020 from 2019. And that's because I'm not, I'm not going anywhere, roll out of bed, get in front of my computer, and I literally can be in front of it uh, all day without any other uh without any other things getting in the way um i would say also that my the particular work i do which is defending consumer class actions filed against food companies has absolutely not let up i don't know that it's increased but it absolutely has not let up and since i've been working safer at home since mid-march i would say we have you know we have had the fortune of probably 10 to 20 new matters <laughs> in the door, um, you know, plus obviously the portfolio you've already got going. So these cases are not letting up uh, in the pandemic. Now put the whole Orange County, LA thing into context for people who only know Orange County by, you know, that's where Disneyland is and have a vague, you know, association of it with LA. What is, what are you talking about when you're talking about commuting from Orange County to LA. What is interesting, Orange County and LA absolutely positively think of themselves as 180 degree differences. Um, uh, LA is the hustle, the bustle, the skyscrapers, the Lakers, um, whereas Orange County has a lot more, lot more planning in its cities and its roads and its housing uh, a lot more organized. So there's there's people who like the LA style. There are people who like the Orange County style. I've always been a person who likes the Orange County style. Um, the idea though of traveling from Orange County to downtown LA, 37 miles. I mean, I call it. It's it is into the jaws of death. It, it is a, <laughs> it is a terrible commute. And when when it's a non-pandemic situation, that 37 miles will take you two to two and a half hours if you did it during rush hour. There are attorneys who work and live in Orange County. They will not go to LA. Or if they have some appearance in LA, it's something that they have to strategize and plan on for a week. Do I go up the night before? Do I get a hotel? <laughs> That's my day every day is driving uh, that commute. Now, the strategy I have that I had before pandemic was I got up at 4.30. I was on the road at five and I was sitting at my desk working at 6 a.m. And that way I could miss uh, almost all of the commute in the morning. And then I would leave the office between two and three and miss most of the rush hour commute going home as well. By the time I got home though, I'd be so exhausted from driving and from getting up so early that um, it was not every day that I was able to get in a few hours more at home. But but most days I would, I brought my computer home every day 
and get the computer fired up and, and work a few more hours. Yeah, I think that's, you are, you're one of the few that I know that have done that for a long time and made that, that commute. That's something that I could not do. It's, yeah. Well, I, I, I've always been kind of an Orange County person. My parents uh, lived in San Clemente later in their life, and I've, we've always liked Orange County. And then uh, my wife and I, who met in law school, she got a job in Orange County. So now we have to make that decision, which a lot of um, couples have to make when one works in L.A. County, one works in Orange County. Where do you live? And there's not too many great solutions. The, to me, the best solution is you pick one or the other and just one of the two get a bad commute. Because if you try to split the difference, it's it's not going to be successful. You're both going to have lousy commutes and you're not really going to live where you want. So from the beginning, we picked Orange County and I'm the one who got the bad commute. Though I've hopscotched back and forth from working in downtown LA to working back in Orange County to working back in downtown LA to working back in Orange County. So right now I'm back in downtown LA. So are you enjoying that aspect of, of the saver from home? I am enjoying it. Um, we're incredibly fortunate um, that we have, you know, a big enough house and everything for my wife and I. She's a lawyer for my wife and I both to work and stay out of each other's way, have video conferences, have telephone conferences. And then there are so many people who are dealing with this that also have to be the educator and uh, other things going on, and I really feel for them. Fortunately, we don't have any of those that extra added stuff. So for us, it's really just finding a quiet place, hunkering down in front of the computer, uh, and we feel very fortunate. You know, there is the aspect of collegiality, being with your colleagues. I definitely miss that, um, not being in the office environment uh, every day. But for for now, working safer at home is be is very efficient and working well. Now, do you still operate as a judge pro tem? I, I don't. When when Howry shut down in March of 2011, uh, we were working in Orange County, the Irvine Costa Mesa office of Howry, and I was a judge pro tem for Orange County Superior Court. But then once I moved to Mayor Brown in L.A., I did it for just a little bit more, but it would be very, very difficult for me to you know, be both in Orange County being a judge pro tem for a couple hours in the day and getting to work in, in LA. So I, I stopped doing that and I never did it for the LA Superior Court, just Orange County. What did that involve? Uh, I the, the judge pro tem program um, is just a fantastic program. Um, it's, a, it's at least a, a two-day training or longer. I can't remember how much the training is, but you definitely have to get trained um, and be qualified. And then you get to select what it is you want to do. The court system needs the, these services in order to get their job done. But you could do small claims trials as a judge. I found that to be very interesting, challenging, rewarding. You can do traffic arraignments, which is the ultimate cattle call. You are getting through 200 cases in a morning calendar of people pleading guilty, not guilty, setting them for trial. You could do traffic trials themselves. These are people who got traffic infractions, pled not guilty, and went to trial. So now you're sitting as a judge in a pseudo-criminal pseudo situation. Um, very rewarding, very obviously humbling and sobering, 
anytime you stand in judgment, it's humbling and sobering. Um, so I definitely found that, you know, you take it very seriously. Uh, certainly the litigants are taking it seriously. The parties are taking it seriously. You also could do settlement conferences. So you can be a judge pro tem and your entire thing is settlement conferences. I myself, that was not something I enjoyed doing. I, I, um, I really enjoyed either doing the traffic trials or the small claims trials. Um, I enjoyed that. I thought very rewarding uh, job. And you can pick and choose any and all of those. You get a reputation, I think, amongst judges and the staff as to whether you are um, doing a well, a good job, and that you are someone who is easy to get along with. Obviously, I think what they really want to see is someone who takes the job seriously and sees it much more as a humbling experience than I'm now a judge wearing a robe. I think they immediately get the vibe as to whether you have the right mindset. Are you a public servant or do you somehow think that now you are have risen above? Um, I always thought of this as public service and that I was a public servant in that role and did my best. Now, at the same time, I never hesitated to make a decision. I mean, that's the job you have to do. You've got to uh, make a decision and do your best. One thing about being a judge pro tem, they want you to finish your tasks during that day. Whereas many judges that you and I confront, they can read the papers, hear oral argument, take it under submission, and you're gonna hear from them in two weeks, two months, sometimes two years. You're not allowed to really do that as judge pro tem because they don't know if you're coming back. <laughs> they, you, you may be assigned somewhere else. They don't want these things lingering. So you've gotta tie everything up by the time you get off the bench. So small claims cases, you need to decide. The criminal cases, you need to decide. Um, so that's an interesting aspect of it too. Now, how did you first get into being a lawyer? When did you think, you know what, I wanna be a lawyer? Perhaps as unreal as it may sound, there's never been a time I can remember that I did not wanna be a lawyer and I was saying it. So I think even in kindergarten, <laughs> certainly certainly first grade, second grade, obviously I didn't even know what a lawyer was or what a lawyer did. <laughs> I'm sure I heard those comments on TV or otherwise that a lawyer uh, was a respected profession. Obviously I always hear the quote, you know, lawyers and doctors. So I think I got the feeling that it was a respected profession and something that people admired. Um, but as early as I can remember, I have a very dear friend uh, who I went to college with. And even in college, I had, there's no question, I mean, by college, you, you, I, I, was, I went to UCLA knowing I was going to go to law, on to law school. And he was blown away by that, that I had that kind of focus as like a freshman in college that I wanted to go to law school. And I'm thinking, freshman in college, I had this focus, I've been talking about it, <laughs> and I've ne I never wavered or varied. Uh, from the earliest, uh, earliest time I can remember. Interesting. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Today's episode of Lawyerly is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Array. With offices throughout the nation, Array is the litigation support partner that delivers speed, accuracy, and unmatched service. Array manages the logistics of litigation so lawyers can focus on winning their cases. 
for information on their discovery, managed review, deposition, alternative dispute resolution, and subpoena services, visit trustarray.com. That's trustarray.com. And now back to the show. All right. So Dale, when you think back on the years you spent at Howery, are those fond memories for you? Oh, they're terrific memories. Um, so Howery was a venerable Washington, D.C.-based firm solely focused on litigation. And it, it really was an antitrust powerhouse. And the antitrust work that it did early on really related to merger and acquisition clearance. So we call that Hart Scott Rodino or HSR. They also were a antitrust litigation powerhouse, including on behalf of plaintiffs. Um, companies who found that they were having to compete in industries that were somehow unfairly rigged. And the firm was wildly successful um, and had a nationwide reputation because of uh, the significant cases as well as its success. Uh, in 1992, after having a terrific 30, 40, year run in Washington, D.C., the firm management decided it was time to take this model and go nationwide. And so they decided to have their first office, their first office outside of D.C. was going to be in Los Angeles. At that time, I was a second year associate at Jones Day and got a call from a headhunter, uh, as all attorneys do. And I, uh, as opposed to saying no, I was intrigued because I had heard of Howry. And I had seen their advertising, which at that time was in a lot of the legal magazines. The American Lawyer was the big magazine back then. Uh, and it was the first law firm advertising I had seen that was anything like it. It was very quirky, very interesting, very eye-catching. And I was thinking, wow, this is the firm that's doing that advertising. I would like to meet with them. So I went and interviewed uh, with them, un unknowns to Jones Day, and... Um, and one thing leads to another when you start down that road. Before you know it, you have an offer, and now you have this really weird feeling, which is, well, I really like the firm I'm at. <laughs> I really like this firm, and now I'm feeling a little bit guilty that I've taken all their time interviewing with them. They've given me an offer on their terrific firm. I decided to go with Howery because I thought they, they had something that was special. One thing for sure, 1992, all the lawyers were using Macintosh computers, which there's no firm that was using Macintosh computers. And even back in 1992, they had full-size monitors. So the kinds of monitors that we all have on our desk today, Howry had on its desk back in 1992. <laughs> uh, so that, I mean, and, and it's really funny to see those kinds of monitors on desks in 1992. They looked like, you know, land of the lost giant strawberries. I mean, it was just <laughs> unbelievable. You'd see these things and you're thinking, that is ridiculously large, right? Um, but man, were they helpful. You could get two full pages on a screen at the same time and those types of things. And from then on, Howie was just a terrific experience. Um, I was able to, uh, I was able to get a lot of antitrust litigation experience, um, and it worked out. It worked out very well. Uh, a lot of commercial litigation experience, and then towards the end of my career at Howie is when I got into the consumer class action um, 
the consumer class action work uh, with the food false advertising. So you spent a long time at Howery from 1992 to 2011. How did it change over that period? Oh, it, it changed dramatically. So the first office outside of DC was in Los Angeles, but then we, we added five more offices just in California before they were done with California. So at one time we had San Diego, La Jolla, Irvine, Los Angeles, Palo Alto, and San Francisco. Uh, this is a firm that had one office in the whole country, and now we had that many offices just in California. But we also added offices in several other places in the United States, and we added offices in several other places internationally. So I, I would say on average, the firm was adding an office at least once a year, if not more, during my tenure there. And, um, you know, when the 2008 recession hit, I think a lot of that growth and fast growth um, put us in a situation where it, it, was diff it, it was challenging. So in addition to the locations that the firm added, we added uh, an entirely new practice group. So we were, the brand always was antitrust with Howery, both litigation and this merger and acquisition clearance. We also had a commercial litigation, so commercial disputes, and they branded that as uh, global litigation. Some of us like to kid around that it was galactic litigation, but global <laughs> litigation. But we added in the 90s an intellectual property group. We merged with another firm. And for many people, the Howry firm turned into an IP brand. So we were considered one of the top intellectual property litigation firms in the world. And it was amazing to a lot of us antitrust commercial litigators that people thought of Howry as that that we really got focused in on that. But the bottom line is the firm added many offices throughout the United States and the world and was rebranded not just as an antitrust commercial litigation firm, but also as an IP firm. And for many people, it really was an IP firm. So what made, in your estimation, Howry a great place to work? I absolutely love the fact that it was nimble. Uh, it was not bogged down by committees and reports and delay it didn't have a big firm mentality of kind of stodgy conservative and we have to vet issues before we do them the firm and i i think moved on a dime is a good way to phrase it that's with technology it's with offices it's with gobbling up practice groups um and i mean a good example of that is the the firm I mean, early on, early on, um, the firm was had voicemails as you know sound files that were emailed to you. So wherever you were, you could get your voicemail. You didn't have to call in to anything. Uh, my current firm doesn't have that. <laughs> Twenty years later, um, in those types of things, we had telephones that had video on them. Uh, we were early adopters to those types of things. It's that type of thing and many others like it that Howry was way out in front. It's advertising. I mentioned that earlier on. You know, they did um, the 
the human side of genius was that advertising campaign that I saw when I was a law student that I was impressed with. They had in court every day. These were really outside the box advertisings for law firms. Now every law firm is doing it. Howie was doing it in the 90s. I just love that fact that they were out in front. Uh, the, camaraderie, the camaraderie was terrific. Really a great group of very talented attorneys, uh, very friendly. Um, and because we were all litigation, six to 700 litigators, every single person in the firm would speak your language. Whether you have a discovery issue, a civil procedure issue, an evidence issue, uh, motion work, judges, uh, how to uh, present a given argument. Um, every person was a, a colleague and a mentor and a potential source to help you get your work done in a better way. So that's that is, was a terrific benefit uh, as well. What's maybe one of your favorite Howry memories? Uh, I've got several. You know, one of them uh, and several of them relate to you, Sean, and this one does. <laughs> you know, you and I had a case for one of the world's largest uh, automobile companies. Uh, and it was a commercial dispute um, with one of the vendors that they had used. And as you'll recall, that vendor was pointing to a specific provision of contract and was indicating that our client owed it money based on that provision of the contract. And you and I looked at that contract provision and we were scratching our heads because it just didn't seem that it could possibly mean what our opposing side was interpreting it to mean. Sure, the language was susceptible to their interpretation, but it, it just didn't seem right to us. And you took over and you, uh, were able to obtain, I don't know if it was from our client, from the other side, or both, you were able to obtain the entire transaction history of the negotiation of that agreement. And it was an amazing record because there were so many drafts and so many changes specifically to that provision, as well as contemporaneous discussions and other things. And I don't know if you spent an all-nighter or five all-nighters, <laughs> but I can recall you saying, Dale, I have cracked the code. <laughs> and you sat me down and we walked through it. And what that provision meant to the parties when they signed it was not what our opposing side was saying five years later in litigation. And then you and I got to take the deposition of the transactional attorney from the opposing side who negotiated the agreement. And we as you say, reminded him of the real record. <laughs> and it was a fascinating deposition where you nailed it. You had it exactly right. And the questions that we asked this guy, he was uh, pinned, pinned down. And by the time the deposition was over, the contract meant exactly what we wanted it to mean. And I'll never forget the look that he gave us across the table it was a look like, where did these guys come from? <laughs> and how much work did they have to do to piece this all together? You know, a lot of what lawyers do, when you look at it from hindsight, it looks like it was easy. Well, this wasn't easy. And we know it, how difficult it was and how creative it was uh, to come up with this argument, which was just terrific. And by the time that case was over, we had turned the tables on them. They were basically asking us to please, you know, 
uh, settle our claims against them. Uh, so it was a very, very interesting thing. Obviously, we, you and I were thrilled. The client was thrilled. It was a great, great experience. That was a great experience. I'm actually good friends with the our opposing counsel now in that in that case. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you, do you, do you think he remembers it the same way you and I remember it? We've had conversations about it. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> he does. <laughs> and and it was a very memorable experience for everybody, I think. Uh, yeah, I thought you were going to talk about uh, something like our um, boondoggle trip from Orange County to San Diego for a uh, a firm retreat in a boat. Yeah, well, that was the second story I was going to say. Let me just say this about that. <laughs> um, you do not want to combine uh, a firm retreat dinner event the night before with getting up at the crack of dawn and going surfing with then jumping <laughs> in your friend's boat for a three-hour uphill cruise back to Orange County in pretty big swells because that combination can be deadly. <laughs> Speaking from personal experience, I can say <laughs> it was rather deadly, yes. Uh, well, when I think of you, Dale, I, I think of a couple things. The first is your personality, how you particular uh, contributed to creating the culture of Howery's Southern California offices. Uh, tell us a little about your approach to treating the people that you work with. Well, I, one, one of the talents I think I do have is getting along well with people and respecting people. Uh, it comes relatively natural to me, and I do enjoy the interaction. Um, you know, but right from the get-go, I think I can relate to the insecurities and the questions and, um, and, um, and make it a far more positive experience. Uh, I am all about sharing credit. Uh, I am all about team. And I'm all about when things go wrong, and they will go wrong. Uh, no lawyer has ever worked on a case that didn't have issues, problems. So you will be managing these kinds of issues. I'm all about simply solving it, not in a sense placing blame or not. You know, obviously you want to identify where the issue came from, but it's certainly not about who can we pin this on. It's about how can we work together to fix it, and then how can we work together to make sure it doesn't happen again. So th these are things that. Um, seems so logical to me and come relatively easy to me. I'm also all about being low maintenance, not high maintenance. I'm all about solving problems, not causing them. So I try to do that in my interactions with uh, colleagues and obviously try to do that with clients. Um, so when Howry opened up its first office outside of DC, they gobbled up a law firm called Hennigan and Mercer. That was 11 people. They took a government contracts group, I think, from a firm called Pettit & Martin. That was another three. There was 14. I was the 15th attorney in the door, and I was there when uh, Howry opened that L.A. office. Um, interesting for me, I, was, uh, I came as a free agent. I came with no other attorneys. And so the Hennigan and Mercer team, in a sense, worked uh, with itself. They were all, they knew each other. They were all comfortable with each other. The Pettit and Martin, that government contracts group, they kind of knew each other. So I was the associate in LA that was 
ready, willing, and available to every single Howery attorney in the Washington, D.C. office. If they had issues or a case, I was at the top of their list because I wasn't already spoken for. Uh, so that was a terrific uh, ability for me to forge great relationships with a lot of the terrific attorneys at Howery. I also had an opportunity early on to start doing training for our associates, and I took that uh, on and it came up with classes that were first just for LA uh, associates. And then as we grew in California for California associates, and then as the word spread, I was able, I was giving these training sessions to associates uh, throughout the firm. I remember some of those. Uh, that's one of the other things I think about you is your encyclopedic knowledge of, of civil procedure. If there's anyone who knows procedure better than Dale, I'd like to meet them. Uh, do you still keep an updated hard copy of the rudder guides at home? <laughs> I do have, and this is safer at home, right? Uh, one of the things I brought home was some rudder groups. I will tell you um, that as my practice has grown and my role has changed, I find it that I need to dig into the rudder group now once or twice a year, as opposed to what it used to be once or twice an hour. Um, you know, there are other people who who now obviously do a lot of it online, I still prefer the hard copies of Writer Group. Um, but, and the encyclopedic memory and knowledge of the civil procedure, you know, it's, it's tough to keep if you're not constantly and daily involved in those types of things. But colleagues of yours and mine from Howery to this day email me about, <laughs> uh, goofy little discovery questions or something because they know that I was very much into that and they know that these outlines that I had from the training I did, which I do have all my outlines, I can pull up and answer uh, some of these questions. Of course, one thing I learned when you do classes on an annual basis for associates, a, a lot changes. So you can, you cannot rely on an outline from a year ago. You obviously have to double check to see and I was always amazed every year uh, that some significant aspect of every single outline had to be uh, amended each year. So let's go back to the time right before Howery went under. Do you remember when you were first concerned that the firm might not make it? Um, it, it was a fascinating time. So again, we were in the wake of the 2008 recession and many firms went down. Howry seemed to do just fine in 2008-2009, and you know everybody thought we were going to be one of those firms that listen, this is going to be something we need to manage, but we'll get by it. But there there was a moment where you know I think this is all public now. There was a moment where Howry had failed to make the distribution to equity partners that um, was would have been expected in a normal year. And my I was not myself, I was thinking, okay, this is something that needs to be managed. It's a blip, it's, it's expected. But I talked to some uh, attorneys at the firm who I trusted a lot, and they explained to me this notion um, of a professional services firm and the idea that once um, an equity partner is not getting an expected draw or distribution that that the problem you have is the spiral issue and that is that that 
lawyer can go to a different firm. And once that spiral starts, once you start losing some of these people who, by the way, are most mobile because they're most successful and have the, uh, a practice that other firms want, once that spiral starts, it is very difficult to stop it and almost assuredly it speeds up. You know, so I certainly had heard those kinds of concepts early on. I still wasn't overly concerned. We had an incredibly strong firm with just a ton of great partners. Um, but I certainly was cautious and looking at it. Um, the, uh, the, the other thing that was going on at or about this time, um, we had two deaths in our firm, um, two partners, Mark Wegner and Cecilia Gonzalez. Both were very significant leaders and partners of the firm. And it happened at or about this time. And I think in the history, if you write the history, I think that has as significant a role to play, both for, um, I think um, it, it was a crushing blow to the firm. They were really well-liked and very successful people, but also as the economy was going on, uh, the firm was having to d deal with both of those issues and, and situations. Um, so, you know, we had watched as a different firm, we had watched other firms collapse and go out of business. And it was, to me, it was interesting to read. You read it in the daily legal newspapers. You saw it from afar. Well, now, of course, we were right inside. We were inside the swirling, uh, hurricane <laughs> watching it swirl around us. And at some point you're thinking, well, I, I'm going to get to see what it's like to be inside the hurricane. And at first it was somewhat fascinating and interesting, but it gets real old real quick. And then it gets a little <laughs> bit scary real quick. Yeah. What was that like for you personally? Because you'd been there for nearly 20 years. You had grown up at, at Howry. You were an integral part of the, of the team there. Uh, what was it like for you to, to see it suddenly go under like that? Yeah, at least two observations. One, I always thought that the talent at Howry was amazing. So it was, I don't know if frustrating is the right word or really disappointing that how in the world could a firm with this kind of talent, with these kinds of clients who relied on us day in and day out for real significant cases, how could this firm go down? Um, I liked the firm management. I thought that they were good. You know, you don't really know exactly the decisions being made uh, day to day. In hindsight, it definitely growing a little bit too far. Uh, too fast could well have had something to do with it, but hard to second guess those decisions after the 2007, 2008, you know, real estate collapse. Um, so I, I was a bit frustrated that somehow, some way, this terrific firm with terrific attorneys, terrific clients was somehow uh, going to the, the other thing though, that, that I personally experienced, and this gets back to my practice, the food false ad craze, if you recall, it's starting in 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. By March of 2011, when Howery officially closed its doors, March 15, 2011, the food false ad craze was for real. And every single major food company had multiple consumer class action lawsuits. Many of them targeted some of the biggest brands you've ever heard of. And even if the cases were not overly serious or significant or raised a liability that was thought to be um, overly problematic, the, the issue of these cases is 
they're suing on products that sell so much. So even if there's a low chance that uh, you have a bad result, the bad result would be catastrophic. Uh, to if if somehow a certified nationwide class uh, all gets a portion of their money back from a purchase of a product that sells a billion dollars a year or something, it would be so disastrous. So a lot of these food companies um, were very uh, concerned or not concerned, but they, they really wanted to make sure that they had the right counsel and that type of thing. So how does this relate to Howry's demise in that time period? Well, our practice group was as hot as you could be. So when it was quite clear to us that Mayor Brown was not going to survive, and then if you recall, Sean, we, there was a merger partner, a different firm that was a merger partner to Mayor to Howry that was um, in advanced stages of discussions. And when that collapsed, um, our little food false ad group was very fortunate to have multiple great firms who were interested uh, in talking to us. And we did talk to several of them and we ended up making a decision. We had a decision to make. So it's kind of a very interesting, fortunate position to be in when a firm collapses that you actually had a choice as opposed to, uh, to a scramble. We ended up choosing our group, choo chose Mayor Brown because one of our biggest clients that we were going to uh, keep working for had a pre-existing relationship to Mayor Brown and they they suggested, we gave them the list of firms we were looking at. And this client suggested, well, we think you should give uh, Mayor Brown a serious look. We did and and, uh, and that's been a great. Interesting. Uh, so what's a career highlight for you post-Towery? There are, uh, we've had a lot of really terrific, um, terrific successes. Um, in one case, we represent a one of the world's largest pet food manufacturers. And in the age of social media hysteria, right when it started, where a product could get a somehow, some way, social media hysteria could start on some false rumor, uh, it happened to this brand, one, one of one of the world's most popular uh, dog food brands. And the the social media hysteria was all about the fact that this food was killing dogs. That's And if you went online, every pet owner who fed their dog this food and who, ha who the pet died attributed it to this pet food. Well, of course, we all know uh, pets eat and pets die. There, <laughs> there's no causation between that correlation, right? But that doesn't matter with social media hysteria. And this pet food brand, one of the most popular in the world, uh, two things happened. One, there was 12 nationwide consumer class actions filed against it. And two, its sales plummeted to the point where employees uh, you know, where they're running three shifts a day to make the stuff, they cut down to two shifts a day. They had significant plans for this product. They had to uh, postpone all of them. It was a very serious and significant issue for the company. And obviously now it turned into a legal issue. So all these cases got assigned uh, to uh, 
a judge in the Northern District of California, which any consumer class action defense lawyer knows this judge. And um, he's he is not considered. Uh, well, let's, let's put it this way. He believes strongly in the rights of consumers and he believes strongly in the tool of class actions. Not exactly the, the place you necessarily want to be if you're a defendant in a consumer class sure. action. Yeah. Well, we talked this – we, we, we had case management conferences and whatnot, and we basically explained to the judge, Your Honor, this is not a case that should go to class certification first. This is a case where it should go to summary judgment first. They're saying our dog food is killing dogs. We do not want this to be certified as class. What we want is this court to make a summary judgment determination. And to his credit, the judge agreed. And so we worked furiously uh, for months and months and months, developed the factual record, filed a summary judgment motion, and this judge granted our summary judgment motion. Um, so that case, which is a very serious and significant case, hotly contested, litigated, uh, ended up in a summary judgment in favor of the client. Um, and the other side, opposing counsel, they did everything they could to try to dodge and get at the very end when they kind of saw the writing on the wall, they said, well, we'd like to get it. We'd like to do our class cert motion first, not realizing that, no, we had already scheduled all this. You're not entitled to have a certified class <laughs> and that interim impact and effect that that would have on a company, even for a baseless case. We want the court to decide summary judgment first and it did interesting meaning meaning that the the judge said you know based on the on the facts as we've seen them there's no evidence that dog food killed these dogs that's correct now we have a phrase at our firm the immaculate tort if you litigate against consumer class actions in a case long enough you will see exactly what i'm talking about First, at the pleading attack stage, they don't think they have to show or prove anything. They think their allegations are enough. And usually they are because that's the standard. So they don't want the judge peeking underneath their allegations. Then you get to the class certification stage. Oh, Your Honor, you're not allowed to look at merits here either. You just have to figure out whether these are common questions that can be decided on a class-wide basis. So again, they don't want to get into the merits. And so constantly you get these issues where the, the plaintiff's attorneys, they don't want the merits tested because they know that once pressure tested, most of their allegations are going to go away. So we over and over had uh, those types of things. And in this particular case, we forced the judge to look at these issues or ask the judge to look at these issues. And he agreed that makes a lot of sense. These are serious allegations and it's good to... But back to this idea of the Immaculate Tort, when it was quite clear that they had zero evidence whatsoever that our dog food killed a single animal ever, <laughs> they changed it. They changed their theory of liability. Now it's not that the dog food kills dogs. It's that the dog food is falsely advertised as being safe and healthy. So now they get into this idea that who cares what it actually does? It was advertised as this, and consumers did, you know, turned out it wasn't as health, uh, healthy and safe as they thought and all this nonsense. Um, we basically said to the judge, this is no different than what they said before. Uh, fine. They agree. They have not a shred of evidence that any dog was ever killed by this food. 
but they also, for the same reason, have, don't have a shred of evidence that it's not as safe and healthy as it's advertised to be. And the judge agreed with that and looked right through it. They had experts who came up with a crazy theory as to why the food might not be uh, he as healthy and safe as it's advertised. And we got that uh, expert stricken. So as part of our summary judgment, we moved to strike the expert because it did not uh, meet Dauber. And the judge did that, and then he granted our summary judgment because they have zero evidence that the food is not as safe and healthy as it's advertised to be. It's a big win. It was a great win. So let's wrap up. I'm going to ask you a few sort of rapid-fire questions here. Uh, what's your favorite thing to do to unwind? Angels, baseball. All right. Yes, if you see, if you watch the game, a left-handed hitter, is up you can often see dale right in the background uh have you a favorite lawyer joke i'm sure i do but my memory's not that great okay i'll tell you one why won't sharks attack lawyers uh this is a good one and I, is it professional courtesy yes professional yes, courtesy. I, do, I do like that one that is a good one that's a good one uh what's your position on lawyer shows uh i've definitely Liked them. There's a ter I think there's a great set of them out there now that I have friends and family and colleagues mentioned to me, and I just don't watch any of them. I haven't had time to watch any. But I, I definitely enjoyed L.A. Law back when I was in college, and Ally McBeal was a quirky, goofy fragrance. <laughs> Do you have a favorite lawyer movie? Uh, I love The Verdict. I love My Cousin Vinny. I think they're both terrific. My Cousin Vinny's a classic. Uh, what's the one thing you've learned about yourself during the COVID crisis? I have learned I'm comfortable with working the Zooms and the WebExes and uh, Blue Jeans. There are so many platforms out there now where you're doing these video telephone conferences. So I've, I've learned that I'm nimble enough to, to, to try to figure it out, sometimes with help, sometimes without. All right, well, I think we need to wrap up, but Dale, it has been really fun to have you on. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks very much, Sean. Well, that's all the time we have. Special thanks to Dale Gialli for joining us today. And thanks as well to our presenting sponsor, Array. Learn more about Array at trustarray.com. Join us again next time as we continue the How Are We Doing Now series here on the Lawyerly Podcast. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe to Lawyerly and give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. Production services for today's episode are by four hours of sleep. And the music for the show is by Rhythmic Revival. Until next time, I'm your host, Sean Kennedy of Herrera Purdy.